from Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Have you ever wondered whether those personal genomics tests are actually any good? On today's program, we'll talk to a trained geneticist who's tried a whole bunch of them. After that, we'll be joined by a lab researcher turned science writer who has taken a deep dive into the emerging field of exercise recovery. And then, as we always do, we'll put them together. Off-the-shelf genetics and getting good to go, that's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Each week on this program, we bring together two researchers from very different fields to talk about their work. This week, we're doing something a little bit different. Our guests are definitely from different fields, but they're not traditional researchers. They're both science communicators. Joining us on the line from Washington, D.C. is geneticist-turned-science writer Tina Hessman-Say, who studied everything from tobacco to yeast back in her days as a researcher and who today helps people better connect to science as the lead writer for Science News. Last year, she embarked on a quest to try out as many consumer genomic products as possible to try to learn about herself and to learn about that industry. Also on the line is Christy Ashwanden. She's a former lab researcher and the lead science writer at 538. She's also the author of Good to Go, What the Athlete and All of Us Can Learn from the Strange Science of Recovery, which you can get right now from your local bookseller. First up today, consumer genomics. Every ancestor that we have has a story waiting to be told. And all we have to do is find that ancestor. And that story will be unleashed. That's the voice of Henry Gates Jr. from a short documentary on the descendants of fugitive slaves and abolitionists, which was produced for the 2019 Sundance Film Festival by Ancestry.com. The ability to connect ourselves to history is one of the big driving forces behind the rise of personal DNA testing companies like Ancestry, 23andMe, and Family Tree. And science writer Tina Hessman-Say is one of the millions of people who has had her genome partially sequenced by these companies like a lot of these companies. Her DNA is part of the databanks of Ancestry, 23andMe, Family Tree DNA, GenCove, Genos, Helix, Living DNA, and Veritas Genetics. And writing about her experiences with these companies for Science News last year, she noted that she's learned a lot about herself, but also about the glaring limits of today's consumer genetic tests. Tina say. A lot of people want to have their DNA tested. I don't think many people try to have it tested by just about every company on the market. What made you want to do that? When I first started, what I wanted to do was compare the different levels of DNA testing that were available to consumers now. And I don't know, it just sort of snowballed. Did you start feeling like you were a little bit addicted to it? In a way, yeah, because I sort of thought, well, you know, I need to compare and I need to know, is it actually going to tell me something different from what these other companies are telling me? They do tell you slightly different things, but where they overlap, there's a lot of disagreement. So it got to be really confusing. So you were interested in family history even before this started. What did you know about your family history as a baseline before you started entering into these projects? Well, as a baseline, I knew that one of my ancestors had fought in the Revolutionary War. And I also knew that one set of great-grandparents had immigrated from Hungary and that one set of great-grandparents had come from Germany, and the other set, my grandfather was adopted, so I didn't know as much about their origins. 
it sounded like you had some information about your family history, but you didn't have a completely well-rounded understanding. How did these tests help you fill in the blanks? This helped me to find relatives, and then I could use that connection to sort of fill in the rest of my family tree. And sometimes it's hard to make sense of the reports, I understand, that you got from different companies. And you have, we should mention, you have a genetics background, but still it was a little complicated to piece these things together. Can you talk about why that was? For all the companies basically told me that I was European, which I pretty much already knew, but they disagreed quite a bit on what percentage of my heritage was from different places. What's important is who they're comparing you with. So if they have a lot of people from Great Britain in their database, they can tell you a lot about your British ancestry, but they may not be able to tell you as much about your German ancestry if they don't have a lot of people from Germany in there. And that gets even much more complicated if you have ancestors from other continents. People who have Asian ancestry often get a result that they're Chinese. That may not actually be where their ancestors were from. It's just the closest match that the company could give them. That's pretty scary to me because I know a lot of people are using personal DNA. They're doing these personal DNA tests for health reasons. And health advice varies pretty widely based on what our backgrounds are. So can these off-the-shelf tests be relied upon for people to have a better understanding of what their health risks and, and potential is? For the average person, I would say no. Some of the companies can tell you some things about you maybe being at risk because you have one particular version of a gene. The problem is they don't have all of the versions of the gene that could put you at risk. Samples of your DNA are now in a whole lot of databases. Do you worry about what this means long-term for your privacy? I'm not as concerned about that. I figure we put a lot of information about ourselves out there on all kinds of social media platforms. DNA really isn't that much different. And nobody actually has access to my raw DNA unless I give it to them. But a lot of people just don't want people poking around in their DNA. It's them. It's the essence of them. And, you know, they want to protect that. So all things being equal, are you glad you undertook this? And do you think that other people should as well? If people want to do it for fun, then they should do it for fun. But they should really be aware of the sort of things that they could find out. A friend of mine, his family had done ancestry tests for Christmas, and he actually found out that he and his brother probably have different fathers, which is something that they had no clue about. And it really shook his foundation. So you need to be aware of the consequences. And if you're not prepared to deal with those, you really should not do this. That's Tina Hesman-Say, whose articles on her quest to try nearly all of the consumer DNA tests that are currently available can be read at sciencenews.org. Tina, can you stick around to chat with our next guest at the end of the show? Absolutely. Next, let's chat about getting good to go. 
You know, I believe you can only work out as hard as your ability to recover. So the harder you work out, the faster you break down. To be able to rebuild my body with a good night of sleep is so important to continuing to play football at a very high level. That is the voice of Tom Brady, who may very well be one of the greatest quarterbacks in football history, but who is becoming just as well known for his sometimes quirky views on exercise recovery, including, and this is no joke, his recovery pajamas. Exercise recovery is a very big business, and like any industry that is trying to stay on the leading edge of research, there's some good science and there's some snake oil. And in her new book, Good to Go, What the Athlete and All of Us Can Learn from the Strange Science of Recovery, Christy Ashwanden investigates a wide range of exercise recovery products, including sports drinks, compression sleeves, muscle stimulators, sleep trackers, and of course, Tom Brady's jammies. Christy, I checked this morning and recovery is still listed as a noun in the dictionary, but you point out that people have started using it in recent years like a verb. It's not a thing that happens to athletes, but something athletes actively do. How did we get to this point? I think that that's sort of one of the fundamental quests of my book was to figure out how we got to this place. I used to be a pretty serious athlete. I was an elite skier, also was a cyclist and a runner. And yeah, back in the day, this makes me sound really old, I realize, but recovery really was a noun. It was something that happened. You would wait around and rest and wait for recovery to happen. But somewhere in the intervening years, this has become a verb. It's something that people do. And I, I've heard multiple times now athletes say, okay, I need to go do my recovery. And you know, the first time I heard that, I thought, what? Like, wait a second, that is not even a grammatical sentence. But now it really has become an extension of training, and, and it has become all of these things that you're doing. Athletes are putting their legs into these, I like to call them squeezy pants, these pneumatic compression sleeves. There are ice baths, there are foam rollers that you have to do on all of your muscles, and all of this sort of becomes, you know, almost another part of the training where it's not it's not so much rest and relaxation like I knew it, um, but it's become like this potentially stressful thing that you're adding on to the other training. A lot of times the stuff that people do when they're doing their recovery can look and sound pretty ridiculous. You wrote about people taking baths and wine and putting suction cups on their bodies. Was that surprising to you or did you were you already kind of aware of all the, the, the kind of strange and wonderful things that people were doing out there to try to make their bodies recover faster and better? It wasn't that surprising. And I'll just say, you know, having been an athlete, I can say from personal experience even that athletes are extremely superstitious. You're always looking for whatever little edge that you can get. Anything that you can do that will give you even a tiny performance benefit, you're willing to do it. So it wasn't at all surprising to me that people were willing to do these sort of, you know, sometimes even bordering on ridiculous things. I think the wine bath is an example of that. This NBA player who was putting pictures on Instagram of himself soaking in a a large tub of wine, you know, that that seems pretty ridiculous. And yet we're so convinced that there must be something we can do to give us a little bit more of an edge. There's an exercise recovery theory out there, and it's one that people really love, that says that drinking beer after a run helps with recovery. And you decided to put this to a test. But there was a problem with the test. It turns out it's a problem in a lot of studies of recovery, you had a lack of a convincing placebo. Can you talk about that? This is something that came up again and again in the studies that I looked at. I mean, I read hundreds, probably thousands even, of papers while researching this book. And one of the problems that occurred again and again, no matter what modality people were studying, is that a lot of these things just didn't have a good 
placebo. And what I mean by that is in our study, we were looking at the effect of beer on recovery. And so in one circumstance, people got real beer. And in the other one, we gave them non-alcoholic beer. But the problem is that these are very easy. to I mean, you can pretty much tell whether you're getting the real beer or not. And so it's really hard to separate out placebo effects and expectation effects from, you know, whatever physiological effect the treatment has. And the same is true of things like icing. I mean, you can't do a trial where one group gets icing and the other group thinks they got icing, but they didn't. And we should say that the in your study, the difference in the beer selections was Fat Tire, which I think is a pretty good beer, and O'Doul's, yeah. which I don't think anybody would argue is a pretty good beer. <laughs> I, I uh, for legal reasons, I think I won't comment on that. But, <laughs> but let's just say that that no one was really fooled. And it was funny. We actually had one guy in our study who actually said, "Oh yeah, I know. This is O'Doul's Amber." He had at one point been trying to qualify for the Boston Marathon, and he was really, really close. And so he decided he was going to give up beer for a while and see if it would help. And it turned out that it didn't. But during that time, he sort of became a connoisseur of non-alcoholic beers, and so he was able to even suss out exactly what what it was we were giving him. In some cases, the things we've done to recover during and after exercise, they're not just poorly proven by science. They can be, well, they can be dangerous. As someone who downed a whole lot of Gatorade as a high school athlete, often on the orders of my coaches and my trainers, I was pretty horrified by what I read in your book about overhydration. Can you talk about that? I mean, we've really had it pounded into our heads that we need to drink, 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 drink before you're thirsty. By the time you're thirsty, it's too late. But when I looked into the research, it, it turns out that this really is, is mostly marketing. Our bodies have a really sophisticated way of telling us when we need to drink and how much, and that's called thirst. And so it's okay. And in fact, the best advice at this point is really to drink to thirst. But we've been told that we need to drink early and often. And this has actually led to something very tragic, which is that there now have been people who've actually died in marathons and other sporting events. There have been at least one football player, maybe more, who have died of this thing. It's called hyponatremia, uh, also called water intoxication. And basically what happens is you drink so much water, so much fluids, that your blood becomes too dilute and you end up with brain swelling and it can kill you. And and one thing that's really terrible about it too is that the early signs of it look remarkably similar to dehydration. And just to be clear, it's not like there are thousands of people dying every day, but while I was researching the book, I tried pretty hard to find a documented case of someone dying of dehydration during an athletic event. Wasn't able to find that, um, but there are people who are dying of drinking too much. And so we've really kind of gone too far with this message. Another long-held recovery method is RICE, that's Rest, Ice, Compression, Elevation. That acronym goes back to, well, it goes back more than 100 years. When it can be assumed back in the early 1900s, a lot of our beliefs about human health were, well, they were a bit different than they are now. RICE is still with us, along with ice baths and these days cryotherapy, which you tried out for your book. Uh, but you write that the effects of many of these treatments, these cold treatments, might not be much more than psychological. I do think that it's worth distinguishing between icing for an injury versus for recovery. And those are slightly different. You know, even before I started researching this book, I've always thought it was weird that, you know, this, this thing that that athletes would do. And this is something when I was bike racing, we used to sometimes do after a hard race, we would do ice baths or one thing that I actually prefer is jumping in a cold stream, something like that. But you're basically cooling your muscles. And it never made 
complete sense to me, like how that would be helping because what happens is your muscles get cold and your body sort of shunts blood away from the extremities and into your core, but then you warm up and the blood goes back and it's sort of like, well, what was happening during that time? Um, And one thing that's happening is, you know, it hurts like hell, but after a while, then you become numb. So the, the numbing thing is something that, you know, if you're in a lot of pain might be helpful temporarily, but it turns out my instincts on this were kind of correct. You know, you're not really doing a lot for yourself long term. One thing that you are doing, though, is temporarily sort of slowing down the inflammation process. And that can actually be something, you know, the opposite of what you want. If you are in a period of training or you're exercising in order to get faster, stronger, better, you know, you want to improve, that inflammatory response is part of what allows you to adapt. That That is what makes your muscles stronger, for instance. It's an important part of that. And so there have been some studies looking at this actually showing that icing and cold baths might actually impair adaptations. And so if, if you are in a period of hard training, this might actually blunt the gains that you would get. It can be good in a situation where you're in a lot of pain and you, you just want the pain to be gone for a little while. But in terms of helping recovery or helping healing, it doesn't do that. Let's talk about Tom Brady's $200 jammies. You try them out along with a lot of other kind of funny products, services, and purported therapies. When it comes right down to this, are any of these things backed with really great science? A lot of them aren't. One thing that I, I did find, though, so let's talk about Tom Brady's magic pajamas, for instance. So the pajamas themselves, the, the sort of sell here is that they contain this special coating inside them, some sort of special like powder or something that's sewn into the fabric that is supposed to reflect infrared radiation back to your body. And so infrared radiation is essentially heat. So basically, they're warm pajamas. The thing that's being sold here is this idea that science is doing something really special here and really extraordinary, and and that's not the case. But it is the case that sleep is absolutely essential. And in fact, what I found while researching the book is that sleep is the number one and the number two and three and four and five, and you know nothing else even comes close. So Tom Brady is absolutely correct to be emphasizing sleep and to be focusing on sleep. And I understand that he's quite famous for going to bed early and really you know getting his beauty rest or whatever. And that's great. But really, I think some of these products are just a way of commodifying something that, you know, is actually pretty simple if only we would do it. That's Christy Ashwanden. Her new book, Good to Go, What the Athlete and All of Us Can Learn from the Strange Science of Recovery, is in bookstores everywhere. And it's an eye-opening and absolutely enjoyable read. Christy, can I introduce you to someone just as skeptical as you are? Absolutely, of course. Well, Christy, this is geneticist-turned-science writer Tina Say. And Tina, this is lab researcher-turned-science writer Christy Ashwanden. It's great to talk with you, Christy. Yeah, nice talking with you, Tina. So a lot of people would probably like to say that they're inclined to question accepted opinions. But you two are like boss-level skeptics. Where does that come from? Well, it's my job. I'm a a journalist. So I guess it's part of my training, but also just part of my DNA. I just have a hard time accepting things that people tell me without evidence. Yeah, I agree. And I think you know, the fact that we're both trained as scientists is important here because it is also part of the scientific mindset that, you know, you may have an opinion of, about something or a belief, but you always have to be open to new evidence and sort of interrogating that belief and saying, how do I really know this? And how strong is the evidence? And so I think a lot of it stems from that, at least for me. 
Christy, you were listening in as I was chatting with Tina. Was there a question that I missed? Was there a connection that you made? Tina, you said that you felt like your genome was sort of boring and so you weren't concerned about privacy. And yet, you know, you tell the story about a friend who probably thought the same thing and, you know, his family got the DNA test for Christmas and, you know, they have this like pretty earth shattering revelation about the family. And I just wonder, I mean, one thing that occurs to me is that you're not just making privacy decisions for yourself, but for your whole family. That's absolutely true. And that issue has really come up lately. Uh, You might have heard about the Golden State Killer case where police use this public database that people use to try and find relatives who had tested with other DNA companies. And they found a relative of a suspect in a string of something like 50 rapes and murders in California. And they were able to then trace the relative's family trees and come up with this suspect, and he turned out to be a match to the crime scene DNA. So some people are actually uploading their DNA intentionally so the police can have that information. But, you know, that gets into this whole thing about, do I have the right to upload my DNA? Because that means that all of my cousins essentially have their DNA in that database as well. So, you know, do I have the right to do that? (laughs) I think I do have the right to do that. I think it really raises a question. Like, really, it seems like in these cases, you know, you can't get consent because you don't even know who you would get consent from. And so it feels kind of ethically fraught to me. It is. It's, It's pretty sticky. Yeah. Every time I write about this, the companies offer that if I want to take a test, and I've always declined, I don't know of any, you know, any sort of family secrets that I'm afraid of outing. But I think that it's more, I felt very uncomfortable because one thing that I know is that these companies are creating these genetic databases. So I'm basically giving them my data in the same way, you know, that there's been a lot of talk in the news now about giving Facebook and some of these social media, um, Google, all this information about us. And I I feel really uncomfortable with that. And I do feel like this is a situation where the product is you. And so you may be paying money to get your, your genes looked at, but you're also sort of contributing to this database that will then be used to market to you and be used to do research that you may or may not benefit from. Yeah, I felt uncomfortable enough that I have not done it. Tina, let's turn back to exercise science really quick. Was there something in my chat with Christy that made you curious or a question you wanted to ask her? I was really struck by when you were talking about the icing and talking about inflammation maybe being a good thing for recovery. Um, How is inflammation a good thing? You know, we always hear about that inflammation is bad and you need to stop it. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? It goes, it's contrary to everything we've been told. One common thing is that people will take the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug around exercise to help with soreness and things like this. And there's actually some evidence now that doing that may impair recovery 
the inflammation process, I mean, that's basically your body's repair process. So anytime you're creating damage that needs to be repaired, you actually want that inflammation. And, you know, there are a lot of different theories about how this goes down. And, and I think that there are probably situations where, you know, you really do want some anti-inflammation. I mean, I don't think anyone wants to be going around with like uh, a football-sized ankle or something like that. But in general, it's just, you know, that is your natural repair mechanism. And so you want it working. The other thing that I was really curious about is whether people actually have different capacity for recovery. Because like some people will say, oh, I heal really quick. You know, I'll be back up and going in just a couple of days. And other people will be like, oh, it takes me forever to recover. Did you find any evidence that that there really is a big difference between people? And is there any hint whether or not that's genetic or what might be responsible for that? I was not able to find any good studies looking at what might make people recover better or worse, but it is absolutely the case that some people are better at recovering. And it seems to be almost like you know, part of an athletic talent. I, I found one person who I talk about in the book. Her name is Camille Heron. She's a very talented ultra marathon runner and she can just bounce back. I mean, run a marathon fast and then run another one. And that's almost like a supernatural ability, right? And there's some pretty good evidence that response to exercise, it, that there's a genetic component to that. There's been quite a few large scale studies looking at, at how this tracks in families. So I suspect that there is some sort of genetic component, but as of yet, there isn't any hard evidence as to like, exactly how this works or like whether there's particular genes or or factors that are responsible. There's a lot of companies out there who are sort of saying that they can use your genes to predict what training regimen would be the best for you based on the type of muscle that you have and things like that. I'm not sure that we're at the point yet where you can actually say that any one particular regimen would fit your genetic profile. Unfortunately, we're just about out of time. Tina Say, thanks so much for joining us on Undisciplined. It's been really fun. Thank you for having me. And Christy Ashwanden, thank you. Thank you. It's been fun. You can listen to Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at SoUndisciplined. We recorded today's show in the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.